0: Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Book of Jonah, chapter 2. We're going to read together verses 8 and 9, which will be our focus this morning. While you're turning there, just one point of clarification. Tim said he doesn't understand teenage girls. He will never understand adult women either. (laughs) Jonah, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And just alienated half the congregation. <clears throat> Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. that's the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. My Father, we bow before you today and ask that you would be pleased to to sanctify your word to our hearts this morning. As we look at it and we pray that our hearts would be opened, that we would catch a glimpse of the glory of our salvation, the glory of our Savior, his sufficiency, his infinite merit and worth, and that we would see here this morning before uh, before you in your word clearly ourselves, our need for you, and all that we have to rejoice in. We pray your blessing upon this time, and may you be our teacher this morning through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in Jonah, and we have looked at a lot of miracles in Jonah, a lot of providential things that have taken place, a lot of supernatural things and a lot of miracles so far in the book of Jonah. And it's kind of easy to lose sight of the fact that I haven't even mentioned the greatest miracle recorded in the book. And it has nothing to do with being swallowed and it has nothing to do with the wind and the waves or the providential guiding of the storm and the ship to place Jonah at the right place at the right time and to pitch him overboard and the greatest miracle in all the book of Jonah doesn't have anything to do with anything we've really seen so far. You know what the greatest miracle, I haven't even mentioned it yet, you know, the greatest, you know what the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is? It is the salvation of an entire city. And that's the greatest miracle, not just because of the, the number of people that get saved, that doesn't make it any more unbelievable or miraculous or incredible than if just one person got saved. Have you ever thought of how much of a miracle salvation is? We sort of take it for granted, and we don't tend to think of salvation as a miracle, but really it is. And we take it for granted because you're surrounded by miracles. You look around you. A lot of your family members, a lot of your friends, your parents, or your, your uh, children, or the people that you work with, many of them probably believers. People get saved every day. You come here to worship on Sunday morning. You're surrounded by a bunch of miracles. But salvation is a miracle, and I would contend, salvation is a greater miracle than the parting of the Red Sea, than any of the plagues done in Egypt, than the feeding of the 5,000, than the resurrection of anybody who has died, the salvation of even one sinner is a greater miracle than any other miracle. Why is that? Because think for a moment of what has to take place just in one person's salvation. For one person to get saved, he has to be made alive who was dead in his trespasses and sins. He has to be granted every spiritual blessing given all of forgiveness, and all of heaven has to be delivered to him. Everything in heaven, he's made a co-heir with Christ, and he's guaranteed eternal glory. What is it that can take somebody who is dead in Adam, who is guilty, and who is damned, and make them alive in Christ, forgiven, and free? What kind of a miracle must that be? If you had been in eternal heaven before the creation of the world with just the angels around... Do you think that God stooped down and asked the angels, Look, I want to display all of the attributes of my glory. I want to display my justice. And I want to display my love. So in order to display both my justice and my love, I'm going to create a race of beings and a universe. And I'm going to allow sin to come in. And then those people are going to fall and damn the whole human race. Now, angels. I would like you to come up with a way that I can be both merciful and just, both loving and righteous. And it would have taken eons of time. And no angel ever would have been able to devise a plan like the plan of salvation that God came up with. No angel would have ever said, I have an idea. Why don't one of the members of the Trinity step into human history Take upon themselves a body, divest themselves of glory, and die the most humiliating death possible on a cross to pay the price for a group of people that will one day be saved. And that way God can, you, the Father, can demonstrate your justice and at the same time give mercy and forgiveness. So you can be both just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That way you can forgive and still be just You can be righteous and your righteousness can be upheld and justice can be done and yet you can extend mercy. No angel, no angel would have ever, no matter how much time, been able to devise such a plan of salvation. What type of a miracle is it that is able to make love and justice shake hands and meet? What type of a miracle is it that raises those who are spiritually dead to spiritual life? That's amazing. Now, if it happens just one time, it is utterly amazing. For it to happen a multitude of times is still utterly amazing. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Sovereignty of God, writes this. Quote, "...in the new birth, God lays hold of one who is spiritually dead and quickens him into newness of life. God takes up one who was shaped in iniquity and conceived in sin and conforms him to the image of his Son." God seizes a drudge of the devil and makes him a member of his holy family. God picks up a destitute beggar and makes him joint heir with Christ. God comes to one who is full of enmity against him and gives him a new heart that is full of love for him. God stoops to one who by nature is a rebel and works in him both to will and to do for his good pleasure. By his irresistible power, God transforms a sinner into a saint, an enemy into his friend, and a drudge of the devil into his beloved child. End quote. That's awesome, isn't it? That is exactly what salvation is. That is why Scripture from first to last, from Genesis to Revelation, in every conceivable way, using every conceivable analogy, and in, in, in every manner possible, describes salvation as of the Lord. Never of men. And never of men and God. Only of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And that's what we come to at the end of Jonah's prayer, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. We looked at the rest of this prayer last week and its context. We saw, saw Jonah describe his condition. We saw him describe his contrition before God, his repentance. And then we saw him, saw him describe the, uh, his... Uh, I have a hard time remembering this week's outline, let alone last week's. And we saw the third thing, which also started with a C. And had to do with Jonah having confidence in God. I knew if I just stumbled over my words long enough, it would roll out. He had confidence in God that God would save him. And that he would again see the temple of God and experience the deliverance of God and the forgiveness of God. But we saved verses 8 and 9 for today in order to give it its due attention. And here's why. Because verse 9, particularly the last phrase of verse 9, that statement that you see at the end, salvation is of the Lord, that sentence is the singular key theme of the whole book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is not about giant fish swallowing men. It's not about Jonah being regurgitated onto the land. The key book, the key theme of the book of Jonah is not even the salvation of the Ninevites or what God says at the end, don't I have a right to be concerned over all of the people in Nineveh? It's not about plants and worms or an east wind. Do you know what the key theme of the book of Jonah is? Salvation is of the Lord. It's on every page and it's in every chapter. In chapter 1, Jonah tried to flee from that truth, and the sailors got saved. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, he affirms that truth. Salvation is of the Lord. And then in chapter 3, we see that truth illustrated in the conversion of an entire city. The transformation of all of those people who repented and got saved. And then in Jonah chapter 4, we see the Lord teaching that to Jonah all over again. And saying to Jonah, Am I not free to have compassion on whom I will have compassion? Am I not free to love those whom I will love? Am I not free to save people even if you don't like it? Because salvation is of the Lord, that's the key theme of the book of Jonah. Ironic, isn't it? I mean, it's a—it's a—it's ironic that this truth, stated as simple as it is and stated as profound as it is, would come off of the lips of somebody who is primarily known for their unwillingness to share this message. That's a bit ironic, isn't it? Think of that statement: "Salvation is of the Lord." Where do we read that? We read that from the lips of a man who was unwilling to share that with others. And then in chapter 4, he's resentful for that very truth. It's also ironic that this would come from a man who was rebelling against the Lord and had to learn this lesson himself. He had to learn that salvation was of the Lord. Ironic that we would read that message in a book that primarily deals with Gentile salvation and God's concern for Gentile nations, that salvation is of the Lord. And do you notice where Jonah learned this? He learned this massive, fundamental, wonderful, precious truth where? In the belly of a fish. That's an odd school, isn't it? You like that school, fish? See how I like that? I've done that a lot all the way through these last two chapters. And you'd be surprised at how many of those I let go that I don't say. He learned it in an odd school. And I got the idea from Spurgeon, actually, who said this. Jonah learned this sentence of good theology in a strange college. Most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction. Otherwise, we shall not truly receive them. No man is competent to judge in matters of the kingdom until first he has been tried, since there are many things to be learned in the depths, which we can never know in the heights. We discover many secrets in the caverns of the ocean, which though we had soared to heaven, we never could have known. That's true. That's one of the blessings of affliction. We learn things in our distress and in our affliction, that we can never know in times of blessing. And what did it take for Jonah to come to the realization that salvation is of the Lord? It took all of the events in chapter 1, of being thrown into the fish and spending 3 days and 3 nights there and then Jonah finally learned it. So we come to verses 8 and verse 9. There's a little bit of an interpretive challenge, a little bit of a translation challenge in verse 8, and I want to give that to you. I've saved verse 8 and 9 because they go together. The ideas sort of contrast with each other. You see that verse 9 begins with the word but. That is because it's a contrast to verse 8 which gives us a clue to the meaning of verse 8. You'll notice in your Bible, and I don't know what translation you have, verse 8 in the NASB says, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now depending on what translation you have, the NASB says that. The NIV says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The King James says they observe they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And the New King James very similar. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. It's only five words in the Hebrew. The first three words, there's no question as to what it refers to. It refers to idol worshippers. Those who regard vain idols. The word for idol, literally translated, means a snare. Those who regard worthless or lying or vain or empty or useless idols. That's the first half of the phrase. The problem comes in the second half of the phrase with those two words. Those who regard vain idols forsake something. What is it that they forsake? Well, it depends on how you take that one of those last two words. It's a word that comes from the Hebrew word said," which means faithfulness or mercy or loving kindness. And it can be, in the context, understood one of two ways. Let me give you the two ways. Either one of these is legitimate, but I think one has a little bit more weight than the other. Here's the first way of understanding verse 8. The second phrase could be referring to the faithfulness of the idol worshiper to his idol, or it could be referring to the faithfulness or the mercy that God shows to the idol worshiper. You say, that doesn't help me at all. It's not clear at all. Give me just a second. Let me illustrate it. It may refer to the faithfulness of the idol worshiper to his idol. If that's how we would understand the last phrase, then verse 8 would read like this. Like the NIV. Those who... Sorry, not like the NIV, but it would read like this. Those who regard vain idols will forsake their idols. They will forsake their idols. They will forsake their faithfulness to the idols. And so it is argued what Jonah has in mind is the sailors. Those who are idol worshippers. when times get tough, in order to be saved, they will eventually forsake their idols. Just like the sailors in Jonah chapter 1. The storm came and they panicked and they began calling out to their God and praying to their idols. But then they found that their idols were powerless to save them. And they couldn't be saved. And so instead they turned to the Lord at the end of the chapter and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows to the Lord and worshipped the Lord with thanksgiving for His deliverance. So the idea is that those who trust in idols will in times of trouble turn from their idols, forsake their faithfulness to their idols and find salvation in the one true God. And that's what salvation is. It is turning from idols to serve the one true living God. So in order for somebody to be saved, they have to forsake their idols. That's why salvation is of the Lord. Because when God brings salvation to an idol worshiper, they forsake their idols. That would be the first way of understanding it. Nothing wrong with that. The second way of understanding it would be that the faithfulness or the mercy, the said refers to the faithfulness or the mercy that God shows to the idol worshiper. In which case, verse 8 would be translated like this. Those who regard vain idols forsake the mercy that could otherwise be theirs. And so here's the idea. When a man turns from the true and living God, he turns from all of the mercy that God, being with God, and having God brings. If you will worship vain idols, you forsake all of the mercy that could be yours. Why? Because you have departed from the true and living God. And so you have departed from life. You have departed from salvation. You have departed from mercy. You have departed from any loving kindness that God might show you. So if you were to turn to idols, you turn your back on God's faithfulness. You turn your back on God's mercy and His love and His grace and His life. But, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. So, if we understand it the second way, then the idea is not pictured in the sailors so much as it is in Jonah. What had Jonah done? Jonah had turned his back on the Lord and fled from the presence of his God. And then he says at the beginning of the prayer, you have cast me into the deep, away from your presence, out of your sight. You've given me exactly what I wanted. And so Jonah, in his folly, had turned to the idol of his heart, which was his own pride, and his own rebellion, and he had worshipped another God and fled from the one true God. And Jonah is, in essence, describing his own experience. When you turn from the one true God, you turn your back on His mercy, and you turn away from that, you forsake the mercy that can be yours, just like Jonah had done. That's how I think Jonah's getting at Uh, chapter 2 describes Jonah's experience not the sailors Jonah's heart his mind his what he had learned about God and his distress and here's the conclusion that Jonah had come to when you turn away from the Lord and you chase after lying vanities you turn your back on all the grace and all of the life and all of the salvation and all of the goodness and the faithfulness and the mercy that could otherwise be yours so I don't say this very often but I think the NIV has the best translation the NIV says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's exactly what it means. You turn your back on the Lord, you turn your back on all of his mercy. But, Jonah says, I will offer to you a sacrifice of praises. And We saw last week what that refers to. He mentions the temple twice in the prayer because at the temple is where atonement was made. At the temple is where forgiveness was was uh, issued and granted because God's wrath, his justice was propitiated in the sacrifices. And so Jonah has the confidence that God, who has delivered him from death by the fish, will deliver him and preserve him in the fish, will deliver him from the fish, and that he will once again look on the land of the Lord and on the land of the living and go to the temple and worship and offer sacrifices there. So that brings us to the end of verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the key truth of the book of Jonah. It's contrasted with verse 8. Idols cannot bring you salvation. No other false god can bring you salvation. But salvation is entirely of the Lord. Now let me offer to you a couple of scriptural passages that speak of salvation belonging entirely to God. And I'm just going to read them to you. And as we do, I want you to understand, this is, this is sort of the whole theme of the book of Jonah, once again. This is illustrated in chapter 1, stated in chapter 2, illustrated again in chapter 3, and sort of taught again another way in chapter 4, that salvation is God's work. It's entirely God's work. Psalm 3, verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Psalm 68, 19 and 20, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Psalm 37, 39, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. Jeremiah 3, 23, Surely the hills are a deception, a Tumult on the mountain, surely, in the Lord, our God is the salvation of israel isaiah forty five seventeen Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity revelation seven ten they cried out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and unto the lamb and revelation nineteen one After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, what does that statement include? What does the statement exclude? The statement includes, listen, anything that is part or parcel of your salvation. Anything anything that you have ever experienced in terms of your salvation and anything that you will ever experience in terms of your salvation, all of it in its totality and in its individual parts comes from the Lord. All of it. It cannot be said that salvation as a whole comes from God if it cannot be affirmed that salvation in all of its individual parts comes from God. Let me say that again we cannot affirm that salvation as a whole comes from God if all of the individual parts of salvation do not come from God. If it can be shown that any one part of my salvation, however small it is, is of my doing or of my accomplishment or of my efforts or of my merit in any way, then it cannot be said that salvation as a whole comes from God. Now I could go through, and you know I could do this because I've done this before, I could make a series of messages out of verse 9. and We could look at all of the little parts of salvation, election and adoption and redemption and the forgiveness of sin and the purchasing of salvation and our sanctification and our glorification and our preservation in the faith. I could go into all of those things in eternity past and eternity future and show that all of the little elements of salvation all are said to be from God and as a gift of God. I could do that. I'm not going to do it. But what I want you to do is to think in general terms about just a few things General concepts regarding salvation. We'll touch on a few specifics, but just quickly. First of all, salvation in its planning is from God. Who planned salvation? God did. When did He do it? In time or in eternity past? He did it in eternity past. He didn't plan salvation in time. He didn't plan salvation after Adam fell as if our salvation was plan B. And plan A was to have a perfect humanity on a perfect uh planet in a paradise, enjoying fellowship with God, and then Adam messed that up, and so now God has to step in and somehow devise a plan to save mankind. That's not how it was. What you and I are experiencing was plan A. God didn't adjust His plans. This was plan A. Plan A was to create a world and then to display the splendor of God's attributes and all of His glory and all of His characteristics By allowing man to fall, by allowing sin to enter, by dealing with sin in its totality, and by redeeming a people. That was plan A, not plan B. We're not plan B. When did God devise and plan salvation? It was in eternity past. Not after Adam fell, not at the moment of creation, not sometime between creation and Adam's fall. He didn't come up with this idea in time. He came up with it, devised it, purposed it, planned it back in eternity past. John chapter 6 says, Jesus said, All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will raise them up at the last day, and I won't cast any of them out. When did the Father give people to the Son? When did that happen? In Titus chapter 1, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, for the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised, Long ages ago. Long ages ago God planned salvation. Long ages ago before a single Adam was spoken into existence, the Father gave a people to His Son. And the Son knew that He would die to redeem that people as a bride for Himself. That was all planned in eternity past. Did God consult an angel? No. Did He consult a man? No. Who did He consult? Who has been His counselor? Who has been God's instructor? Who was there to say, this I think is a good idea, Lord. This I think you can learn from. Nobody. When did He plan salvation? All of its planning and all of its entirety was not in time, it was in eternity. And the purchasing of salvation is of the Lord. Not just the planning of salvation, but the purchasing of salvation. You see, no angel and no mere man could step into human history and pay an infinite price to a holy God for the sin of all those who will believe no mere man could do that only one type of sacrifice could atone for the sin debt which was an infinite sin debt and it was an infinite sin debt because we have sinned against an infinite person it's not the amount of sin that we uh it's not the amount of sin we commit it is the person against whom we sin and no atonement could be made by an animal they can't wash away uh, sins or cleanse the conscience No sufficient atonement could be made if an angel came in and died. And no sufficient atonement could be made for a mere man. How can an infinite debt be paid to an infinite God only by an infinite sacrifice? What is needed for an infinite sacrifice? The only way an infinite sacrifice could be paid is if God stepped into human history and bore in His own body the curse and the payment for all sin. That would be forgiven. Only if God did that. Only if God stepped into human history could He pay an infinite price. The atonement of Jesus Christ, listen, it is infinite in its sufficiency. If God desired to save everyone who ever lived, Jesus Christ would not have to suffer one more moment on the cross. He was an infinite person who bore an infinite debt for us. For our infinite sin debt. It is sufficient to save all who will believe. And it is infinite in its power. And it perfectly accomplishes everything that God intended for it to accomplish. It perfectly pays the sin debt for all God's people so that when you and I come to Christ, we can understand all of my sin has been paid for. From the first to the last, every sin I have ever committed and every sin I will ever commit has been atoned for on the cross because that sacrifice was sufficient for me. It is of God in its planning. It is of God in its purchase. It's of God in its application. Because the Spirit of God then, stepping into time, makes what God planned in eternity yours in time. So He quickens your heart and He regenerates it and He gives you newness of life and He creates faith and turns you from your wicked ways and makes Christ desirable to you so that you want Him and you will come to Him and you love Him and He gives you a new heart and new natures and He indwells you and He seals you by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And He secures you until the day of redemption as a down, a down payment, a deposit, infinite in its payment, infinite in its application. or sorry, infinite in its payment, and it is of God in its payment and in God of God in its application. It is also of God in its preservation. Its preservation. All that the Father comes to me will come, or has given to me, will come to me, and I will not cast any out, and I will raise him up at the last day. All that the Father has given to me, Jesus said, I will raise them up at the last day. That is the security of my salvation. My salvation rests in its ultimate securing and sanctifying sense, not in any merits of Jim Osmond, but solely in the merits of Jesus Christ. Because of who He is and because of what He has done, salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord in its planning. It is of the Lord in its purchasing. It is of the Lord in being applied to you and I. And it is of the Lord in preserving us to the very end. And this, by the way, is what separates every false gospel from the true gospel. Every false gospel mixes in some way human merit, human accomplishment, human achievement, human will, human decision, human acquiescence in some way, but not the true gospel. The true gospel says salvation is of the Lord. Every false gospel says it's up to you to do your part. Just a couple weeks ago, I was sitting around a table with uh, 12 Protestants, approximately, and three Roman Catholics. Staunch Roman Catholics sitting at the other end of the table. Roman Catholics who believe that salvation is not in the general Catholic Church, but in this specific, very narrow stream of, of the Catholic church and you got to follow them and do everything the way they want it to be done in order to be saved. And the, the discussion amongst us had, uh, well, one of the, not getting into too much detail, but one of the sort of the elements at the foundation of, at least as far as I saw it, was just how much fellowship can we have with them in participating with them in different ministries and things like this. And over and over again, I heard this Catholic priest say to all of us, um, what Jesus did on the cross was great. Don't want to take away from that. What Jesus did on the cross in purchasing our salvation was dandy. No problems with that, but... Always the but. You can listen to that little word. Love that word. But, he would say, we have to do our part. And at one point, he actually said, this is one of the things that we do in order to help save our souls. Now, this went on for about an hour and a half. You know how I am. I was very quiet. didn't say anything for an hour and a half. Not inclined to speak my mind until the very end. And what I was... I was waiting for, and you laugh, but this is true. If I'm in a gathering like that, and somebody else is speaking my mind, I won't speak it. I just be quiet. But nobody was quite saying it the way I I wanted it to be said. So, in a very gracious way, I said, and I said to him, "Look, you've been honest to basically affirm to us that you believe we're lost, we're unsaved. So, and, and kudos to you for that. But I want you to understand, from our perspective, you're lost." And so this goes both ways and we have to be honest with each other and and we are being honest with each other and I appreciate your honesty. This goes back to the gospel of what must I do to be saved. We have irreconcilable differences. We cannot come to a meeting of the minds on what a person must do to be saved because you believe that you're saved by your works, by saving your own soul, by doing all of these things that you have to do. And What Jesus did was good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. It just makes you savable. From our perspective, What Jesus did saves us, period. No working for our salvation or anything like that. It's Galatians chapter 1. There is the true gospel, and then there's every other gospel. And Paul pronounces an anathema, a curse, a damnation upon anyone who preaches any other gospel. Now, you and I have different gospels. So either you're damned, or I'm damned, or we're both damned. But certainly, one of us is damned because we disagree on the issue of the gospel. And... He was very gracious. We shook hands. We smiled at each other. It was no hard feelings or anything, but I was just sharing with him this basic truth. If you have a gospel or a belief in salvation that somehow works in human merit, you've diluted and polluted and destroyed the whole thing. Listen, there are only three options. Either salvation is entirely of man, in which case man gets the credit and man gets the glory and man does the work and man does the accomplishing of it and heaven is man's to choose and man's to acquire, and man's to let himself into. Or, second option, salvation is of man and God, in which case God cooperates with man. And so salvation is of the Lord and men, because God does His part, and He meets us halfway, as it were. And you and I must do our part, and we must come the halfway, and we meet God. And each party then can take credit, for what He has done for His salvation, or for the salvation of the sinner. So God gets His glory, you and I can get our glory. If I were to come to you, but listen, if it's of man and God, then it cannot be of any way said that it is of the Lord. If I come to you and I hand you a hot dog and I say, this is a beef hot dog. You look at it you say, beef hot dog, I say, it's a beef hot dog. Now it's got some horse, some pig, some chicken, And, of course, cat meat, because cat meat makes great sausage, especially if it's in a Chinese restaurant. And it's got some cat meat in there. But it's a beef hot dog. You would look me in the eye and say, you can't tell me this is a beef hot dog when it is has all of these other elements mixed into it. It is the same thing with salvation. You cannot say salvation is of the Lord if man enters into the mix in any way. It can't be said. It can't be done that way. The third option, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And it's not me trying to save my soul. It's not me taking what Jesus did and perfecting it. It's not me taking what God has done and meeting Him halfway, somehow finishing it out, working it out, rounding it out, polishing it up, making myself finally saved to the very end. If it's of the Lord, it's of the Lord. If it's of men, it's of men. Now, it might be of men, or it might be of men and God. The Scripture says it is of the Lord. It is of the Lord. Which means that it is not of men nor is it of men and God. As if God cooperates with us in our salvation. What does Jonah say? Salvation is of the Lord. That is the affirmation of Scripture from first to last. In every way, salvation is of the Lord. Now you say, but Jim, I believed and I repented And I am continuing in my faith. I understand that. Listen, I repented, and I believed, and I am persevering in my faith. I'm doing all of those things. I don't deny you that at all. The question is this. Why did you believe? Why did you believe? See, the glory doesn't go to you for your belief. The glory goes to a God who grants salvation. The glory goes to a God who planned this redemption plan. The glory doesn't go to you or to I. I understand you believed, and I understand you repented. But you know why I believed? I believed because the Spirit of God turned me from my wicked ways. The Spirit of God changed my heart. The Spirit of God opened my eyes. The Spirit of God gave me a new nature, a new heart, and new desires. And Scripture says that belief has been granted, and Scripture says that repentance has been granted, so that neither in the believing nor in the repenting, can I take any credit for it whatsoever. Neither can I take credit for my persevering. Because Scripture says that even my persevering in the faith is a gift. I am being kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. God is able to present us faultless before His throne with exceeding joy, blameless and pure. Not us, but God. So it is all of the Lord. From first to last. The believing, the repenting, everything, this is what I said at the beginning, Everything that has ever been experienced or enjoyed by you in your salvation is of the Lord. Everything that ever will be experienced by you in your salvation is of the Lord. I will not be able to step across the threshold of heaven unless the Lord does it. I have no power to do that whatsoever. Salvation is of the Lord. This is a very humbling and God-glorifying truth. Because Whatever part I play in this, I can receive credit or glory for it. And we're not all going to get to heaven and say, hey, you made it. Congratulations. Wow, good job. Good on you, mate. We're not going to say that at all. Why? Because boasting is excluded. By what law? By the law of works? No, Paul says, Romans chapter 3, but by the law of faith. Boasting is excluded. There will be no boasting. Nothing. We're going to stand in heaven and say, every last bit of that was a gracious, loving, God, who loved me and drew me and saved me and secured me all the way to the very end. And the last step that I take over the threshold of heaven's door will be His preserving, sanctifying, and perfecting grace. Every last bit of it. It's a very God-honoring truth. It's also a very comforting truth because I realize my salvation ultimately, in the ultimate sense, is not from me. That's comforting because, listen, if I could lose my salvation, I would. I would I would have lost it already today. If I could fail, if losing, if I could lose my salvation by failing the Lord in some way, I would have already done it a hundred times this week. Every one of us has failed to love God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. From the moment that you walked in here today, you have not loved God with your entire being. You can't. And if I could somehow mess up my salvation, if I could somehow lose it, I would. But it's not up to me to lose because it wasn't up to me to get. God has given it to me. And I can't lose it because I didn't do anything to secure it. But He is the one who secures me through to the very end. He will not leave me. He will not let go of me. He will not lose me. He will lose none, Jesus said. I said this before. The idea that somebody who has been saved and forgiven and completely justified, all of their sins forgiven, the idea that that individual can in the end fall away and suffer the torments of eternal flames and the wrath of God for their sin is a heinous and hideous doctrine. And I believe it is hideous for this reason. It impugns the Word of Christ who said, of all that the Father gives me, I will lose none. And then somebody comes along and says, no, but it's possible for that one to be lost through their own doing, through their own lack of persevering, through their own bad works. No, it's not. Not at all. He is able to present me faultless before His throne. And He will lose none. That is incredibly comforting to me. Comforting to me. Because He's not going to lose me. He's not going to let go of me. They says, does that mean I can go out and sin to my heart's content? Now, if that thought ever even popped into your mind, you need to stop and examine to see if you're even in the faith. Faith, Because redeemed people don't think that way. Redeemed people don't think, oh, I've been saved, so I can go out and sin to my fullest. You can't. That's not how born-again people believe. That's not how born-again people live. You go out and you want to sin to your fullest, you're just going to prove that you were never saved to begin with. You're just a false convert, a professor of eternal life, but not a possessor of eternal life. It's a very God-honoring, God-exalting doctrine. It's a very comforting doctrine that salvation is of the Lord. It's also a very encouraging and confidence-building doctrine. You, to, you think I would ever preach the gospel anywhere, in, ever set, in any setting, or ever share my faith if I thought that it rested upon me and my ability to somehow convince the sinner to turn from their sin? Are you kidding me? I despair. If I thought that an invitation to witness or to share my faith or an opportunity to preach the gospel depended upon my ability to convince that leper to change his spots, to convince that sinner to turn from his sin and to give up his wicked ways, I would never share the Gospel. Why would I? I would despair of ever doing that. But it's not up to us. It's up to God. It's up to God to change the heart. It's up to God to do the work. Why? Because salvation is of the Lord. And so you can have confidence in sharing your faith. And you don't have to wait until you think that you're able to somehow answer every objection, every question, and get it just right. Because who knows, their blood might be on your head. Why would I want to share it if I thought that they would reject it and their blood might be on my head? Or that I would somehow mess it up? And that would be the reason that they would be lost for all of eternity. No, friends, listen. You and I will say with the saints of old, with Jonah, Salvation is of the Lord, and someday we will stand in heaven. And we will say with the redeemed multitude, Hallelujah, for salvation and honor and glory belong to our God and to our God alone. Let's bow our heads. Father, we rejoice in Your goodness, in Your goodness to save. You are perfect and You are holy. You are righteous and You are good. And we thank You that You have planned the redemption of an innumerable host from all of time from eternity past. We thank you, God, that you have done this for your own glory. We thank you that our salvation does not hinge upon our ability to perfect ourselves, to save our souls, to make ourselves savable. We thank you that we have been made children of God, not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. And we thank you that you have loved us enough to condescend and to save wretches such as us. You have made wretches your treasure. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that we can glory in Christ and Christ alone. We thank you that boasting has been excluded. And we ask God that today, if there is somebody here who has never trusted Christ, who has never understood the purity of the gospel, the grace that is available, that you would so work in their hearts to make Christ irresistible to them, that you would, by your gracious hand, decide to save even such as them and such as us. We thank you that there is salvation in Christ. We ask that you would draw many men and women to him. In Jesus' name.